I invite you to turn in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 16. I want to welcome all those of you who are with us today, uh, members of CBC, guests. Worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, as I say, um, verses 7 through 16, wonderfully rich passage on the church and how the church grows and and, uh, Christ's plan for building up his people. Uh, I trust that you'll find it to be so as well as we look at this in more detail. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He descended... He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, And carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that you dwell in glory and unapproachable light, that you are sovereign over all things. You do as you please in heaven and on earth. You are the Lord. You are the King. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that, exalted as you are, you continue to care for each one of us individually and accomplish your good purposes in our lives. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you continue to build up your church and your people. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you'd be at work this morning in our midst through the Holy Spirit, uh, deepening our love for one another, deepening our love for you, uh, and correcting wrong ways of thinking and wrong ways of engaging with the church. Uh, We pray that you would use the word this morning to accomplish all of your good purposes uh, here at Christ Bible Church and in our lives as individuals. Bless us, Lord, as we reflect on your word and receive it. Uh, Grant us to receive it in faith and obedience. Amen. Building projects, as you uh, perhaps know, if you've been in the, the church for a while, building projects are a, a common feature of church life. Uh, you know, if the, the church grows, there's a need to ex- expand the sanctuary to allow for more worshipers. We're in the midst of that right now. Uh, so there's frequently a need to engage in various uh, physical building projects. Uh, as I say, we're about to do one, and, and of course, that's good and necessary. Uh, We want to make space for worshipers. Uh, But we need to recognize that there is a more fundamental construction work happening in the church, and it's the work of Jesus Christ to build up his church spiritually. And even if we don't know anything about construction in the standard sense, all of us, as we'll see, are called to engage in this work of putting one brick on top of the other and building up the church spiritually. Uh, What we will look at as we look at this text is how Christ builds the church. And we're going to look at that question from a variety of angles. But that's the central thrust of what we will see. How does Christ build his church? 
And the first thing we want to say in response to that question is that Christ build, builds his church through the gifts that he gives to the church. He builds his church through the gifts that he gives to the church. In verses 4 through 6, Paul has emphasized the unity that God's people have. There is one body, one church. There aren't multiple churches in the deepest sense. There is one universal church. There is one God. There is one hope. All of these things we have in common, there is unity. But now in verse 7, Paul begins to speak of diversity within that unity, diversity of gifts apportioned according to the will of Jesus Christ, according to the measure of Christ's gift. The idea here is that Jesus Christ has bestowed gifts according to his good pleasure on his people, different talents, abilities, strengths. He has given different gifts and even different degrees of gifts according to his grace. Grace in this context doesn't refer to what we might call saving grace, the undeserved goodness of God by which we are washed of our sins and brought into a relationship with Him. Grace is the undeserved goodness expressed in giving us, uh, each one of us, different gifts. So yes, if you're in the body of Christ, we're not gifted the same way, there's diversity, but we're all gifted in some way to help the body, to help the church grow and develop. And the purpose of gifts is not to draw attention to ourselves and say, hey, look at me, how wonderful and gifted I am. The point of gifts, the reason Jesus gives them, is to help his people be instruments by which he builds his church. So if you belong to Christ, then he has gifted you in some way, and you are called to use that gift for the good of your brothers and sisters. Gifting implies calling. If you're if Christ has given you a certain ability, a certain competence, then you should use that to serve the church. There are various gift lists in the New Testament, none of them exhaustive, but they include things like uh, gifts of administration and organization, uh, gifts of encouragement, um, various good works and acts of service are part of the, the gifts that God gives to individuals, and whatever gifts you have, use them. But of course you might say, I don't know what my gifts are. This is a perennial question. Uh, how do I know what, what my gifts are? I don't, I don't know how I can serve the body. Well, the uh, first thing to say here is you're not going to find out how you're gifted by just going into the meadow and pondering, how am I gifted? Uh, you find out how you're gifted by doing. What, is, what needs are there? Uh, try to meet those needs, and as you uh, are active in the church and engage with other people, your brothers and sisters will generally provide encouragement. Hey, thank you, that was helpful, that was useful. And through the body, you increasingly discern, oh, this is how God has called me to serve. I'm going to lean into this. In addition, I would add, uh, Tim Keller makes the observation that we can know what our gifts are by, by what bugs us. What bothers you is often a good indication of how you're wired. So if you go to a new church and you don't know how to sign up your kids for Sunday school and it's not clear what you're supposed to do and the procedures are not clear and that bothers you, well, you're, you're one kind of person. Uh, if you see a person after the service and they're just sitting by themselves and nobody's going to talk to them, how can, how can people ignore this person, not engage with them? If you're bugged by that, that's perhaps an indication of one kind of gifting. And if you're sitting there and the preacher says something that you consider to be theologically inexact and it, it bothers you, that's perhaps an indication of another kind of gifting. That's a good thing to look at. What bugs me in church life? What do I tend to notice when it doesn't go well? And that tends to be a pretty good indicator. Uh, for me, it was, I remember sometime in college, discovering expositional preaching. Uh, just preaching by definition should be expositional. Preaching where the point of the sermon is the point of the passage. Uh, but it was a big discovery for me in college. 
And, and that just became my thing. It bugged me when preaching uh, wasn't clearly grounded in the text. The text was used as a launching point for all kinds of other ideas, and it irked me. And uh, I suppose to some extent it still does. Maybe I have a little more humility having done this a while now. It's sometimes, sometimes difficult. Uh, but, but that was an index of, of my sense of what was important in the church and ultimately how God would use me. So as you assess, how am I gifted to serve the body? Ask that question. What, what tends to, to irk you? So Jesus bestows gifts on his people. And then Paul, in verse 8, uh, quotes the Old Testament, Psalm 68, to substantiate the point. And Psalm 68 says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, in the original context, it is the Lord, Yahweh, going to Zion, to Jerusalem, to his temple. He's ascending, he is victorious over his enemies, and he's receiving tribute. Uh, here, Paul ply, applies that verse to the risen Lord. Jesus died, but he conquered death and rose again triumphantly. And he is exalted to the place of ultimate authority and power in the universe at the right hand of God. And from that place of glory and majesty, the king bestows his riches on the church. He gives gifts to his people and he strengthens his church, uh, lavishly bestowing on his people what they need. That's the picture. The exalted Christ having conquered his enemies, defeated the powers of darkness, dwells in majesty and power, and bestows gifts on the church. He continues that, and he says in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Now that phrase, lower regions, shouldn't be taken, I don't think, as lower regions of the earth, lower regions being a part of the earth. Instead, the lower regions are identical to the earth. Lower regions, that is, the earth. What Paul is saying is that the one who is now exalted at the right hand of God is also the one who descended in the incarnation. The eternal Son of God who has no beginning became flesh, became a human being. The Son of God freely took upon himself the limitations of human life by becoming one of us. He dwelt in our midst and then he humbled himself again in his crucifixion, dying the death of a common criminal, dying in our place. And then the father raised him from the grave, seated him at his right hand, so that he might fill all things, that is, have authority over all things. Jesus is the triumphant king, dwells in majesty and power, and in his capacity as Lord over all things, he pours out gifts on the church for her good. That's the picture here. And the gifts are not limited to, and, and indeed in this context, the focus is not primarily on the gifts that we have as individuals. The gifts that are especially in view are identified in verse 11, qualified godly men to lead the church. These are the, especially the gifts that Christ has given for the good of his flock. He gave the apostles. The apostles are foundational to the church. The apostles were those who saw Jesus during his earthly life, saw his miracles, heard his teaching, and are witnesses to his resurrection. The church is built on the apostolic testimony. They are the ones commissioned by the Lord to be the authoritative interpreters of who Christ is and what he has done. And the church is built on their testimony. We are apostolic, not in the sense that there is an unbroken continuity uh, between Peter and some bishop today, 
uh, we are apostolic in the sense that we hold on to the apostolic message that was given for us once and for all in the New Testament. Now, to be clear, there are no more apostles today. The apostles are gone. They have died, and that office ended with them. One reason we know that is that to be an apostle, you had to see the risen Lord. You had to be an eyewitness to Christ. And in the nature of the case, that concluded in the first century. So the apostles are not here with us anymore. That office is no longer here. But we have the apostolic message in the New Testament, and it is the foundation of the church. So Christ gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. Uh, the prophets, are, in this context, are more or less like the apostles. Uh, the, the reference here is to New Testament prophets who are instruments of the authoritative teaching that we have in the, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, we can see this, for instance, if we compare this passage with Ephesians 3.5 where we are, we are told, it, the mystery, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. These are not Old Testament prophets, these are New Testament prophets. Uh, now, I do believe that there is an ongoing work of the Spirit that we can uh, describe roughly as prophecy even today that continues, but I don't think that that's what's in view here. The prophets referenced in this passage, like the apostles, were part of that foundational ministry of the, the church. The church was established, and we don't have prophets in this sense anymore. That has passed. We do continue to have, however, evangelists. These are those who are uniquely called uh, and gifted to preach the gospel to other people. Uh, they travel, perhaps, from place to place. Uh, but let me be clear that just because there's a special class of people who are gifted and called to be evangelists doesn't mean that we are not all, in some sense, called to be evangelists. What is higher or better that you have than Jesus Christ? You were once dead in your sins and trespasses, and through Christ you have forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. How can you not want to share that with people? How can you not want to tell them about Jesus? So of course every believer at a basic level has a calling to share the good news about Jesus with others, but there's a class here that are uniquely gifted and called to share the good news about Jesus with others. And then we have, as part of this gift that Christ gives to the church, the shepherds and teachers. Now, it's significant that we, it doesn't say the shepherds and the teachers. It's the shepherds and teachers suggesting that there's substantial overlap between these two groups. They're not necessarily identical, but there's overlap between pastors and those who teach. Paul is saying that qualified godly men who teach the word of God to the church, pastors, shepherds, elders, as New Testament uses this terminology interchangeably, these are gifts of the risen Lord to the church for the good of the church. It's an amazing statement. Shepherds, incidentally, pastors, that, that office continues to the present. It's not like the apostolate that um, came to a close in the first century. But the, what Paul is saying is that pastors, godly, qualified leaders in the church, are gifts of the risen Lord to his people to build them up. That's how we should view pastors. That's how we should think of them. Uh, Christ, in his love for his people, has given them gifted men who will teach them the word. Now, this sounds terribly self-serving, not least because I'm a pastor. Uh, in response, let me say, I emphasize it because it's in, in the text, because it's in the scripture. And since the New Testament vision of leadership in the local church is that there are a plurality of pastors or elders, I too am called to show honor to my fellow pastors and submit to them as well. But this text is crucial because it shows us the posture, the attitude that we should have towards our pastors, towards those whom Christ has raised up in his church. It's an attitude of 
receptivity to their ministry, an eagerness to be taught by them, to love them in Christ, and to be thankful for the ministry that Christ has given to the church through them. We live in an age that is suspicious of authority. Everybody wants to do what is right in their own eyes, and they don't want to be corrected or challenged. Let me do what I want. If you want to say anything, affirm me, but don't correct or challenge me. That's not a biblical view of authority. Where there is godly authority in the church, that is a gift of Christ, and we should welcome it and receive it and be eager to learn from the men that Christ has given to us to teach us his word. We shouldn't be skeptical unless there's reason to be skeptical. We shouldn't resist the ministry of the word. We should be ready to heed those who are, whom Christ has put over us. Now, let me qualify. This is not an absolute call to unconditional obedience. Pastors are themselves men under authority, and that authority is Christ and Scripture. And so as pastors deviate from that, if they deviate from Scripture, then of course we are permitted, and it is right to reject anyone who deviates from Scripture. Scripture is the ultimate authority. Nevertheless, assuming things are going properly, there should be a, a warm relationship between pastor and sheep, a readiness to learn. Pastors are the gifts of Christ to his church for their good. Now, what should we expect of pastors? It's a question worth asking because there's often significant confusion about what it is pastors should be doing, what the church should be doing. And in response to that, it's noteworthy that all of these offices and gifts are in essence word ministries. In one form or another, these are uh, offices that involve the transmission of God's word to others. Teaching is of fundamental importance in the work of shepherding. Whatever else you should want pastors to do, we should want them to teach us the Bible clearly and effectively, showing us Jesus Christ on every page. There's more to ministry, but not less. We should expect that the pastors would grow in their ability to handle scripture and show us how to live in light of it. That is the essence of the pastoral uh, task. Now, this doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings when the word is preached. It happens casually over coffee as the word of God is open. So, okay, this is what the word says, and this is how to live in light of it. It happens in Bible studies. It happens in a variety of different contexts. But what we should expect from our leaders is that they would teach us the word of God faithfully and accurately and exalt Christ. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're looking for a local church, the first thing you should prioritize is the ministry of the word at that church. Is the word being correctly handled? Is the truth being proclaimed? Is Christ being exalted? Everything else is secondary. Not unimportant, but secondary. Those whom Christ has given to the church bear the responsibility of faithfully instructing his people in the truth of the gospel, helping them go deeper and deeper in his word, deeper and deeper in their knowledge of Christ. John Stott in his commentary puts it this way, Nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. We should pray that there would be faithful churches everywhere with effective ministries of the word all over the place uh, where Christ is lifted up and his word is faithfully proclaimed. That that would be central in all of the local churches around us. And where that happens, where the ministry of the word is central, where Christ is preached, uh, that's a sign of God's favor on his people. When the word is backgrounded, where there is a famine of the word, it's a sign that things are not going as they should be in the church. 
We need to be praying that God would lift up many churches and many ministries that emphasize the word and exalt Christ. What should we expect of pastors? That they would bring us God's word faithfully and grow in that, doing it more and more effective, effectively and clearly. Second way Christ builds, builds the church. The so first way, he gives gifts to the church, qualified godly leaders. Secondly, he calls all of his people, all the saints, to engage in the work of building up the church. We might call this every member ministry. Christ builds the church, not simply through pastors, but also through all of his people. Look at this text. Look, look at verse 12. So he gives the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for what purpose? Verse 12. To equip the saints, for what purpose? For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. If pastors are the only one doing ministry in a local church, there's something wrong with that church. Pastors are called to equip and train others so that they, in turn, might be in others. Maybe if I don't move. Pastors are not supposed to do the work of ministry exclusively. They are called to come alongside of other people, the members of the church, teach them, love them, help them to grow, so that they, in turn, could take initiative to engage in the spiritual growth of other believers. This, this is a vision of every member ministry. We take initiative to help one another follow Jesus Christ. Is that the vision of church that you have in your mind? When you think of the church, who's doing the work of building others up? For many people, the answer is, well, the pastors, the leaders are doing that. Everyone else is sort of spectating, sitting on the sidelines, watching. If that's your vision, understand that that's not a biblical vision of the church. Yes, the pastors take the lead in bringing the word to the congregation and forming God's people, but then God's people are expected to take the initiative and help others grow and follow Christ. Just as we saw last week in the previous passage that we are all called to work to maintain the unity of the church, so also we are all called to engage in this great construction project of building up the church, taking initiative to help other people take a step towards Jesus Christ from wherever they happen to be. Do you see yourself in that role? That you are Christ's instrument for helping other people follow him. This includes, of course, the use of your gifts, as we've mentioned, serving the body with your gifts, but it also includes every kind of initiative uh, to help someone get closer to Jesus from where, where they happen to be. One indication that you have internalized what Paul is saying here is that there is a shift in mindset. You go from being a passive member of the church and you expect everybody else to do the ministry to an active initiator of ministry. You go from simply being a consumer of ministry to a producer of ministry. Let me show you what I mean. Let's suppose that you notice that a brother or sister hasn't been to church for about three, four weeks. A passive person will look at that and go, man, I hope the elders notice. They should probably call that person. At most, you might go to the elder and say, hey, you should call this person because they haven't come. But the idea is leadership, elders, pastor, it's their responsibility to help this person. Passive. An active person, on the other hand, will say, oh, they haven't been to church in three, four weeks. I better call them. I need to see what's going on with them. I want to see if I can help them in some way. You see the need, and then you take initiative to meet the need because you understand that before Christ, you too are responsible for your brother and sister, not just the elders. Another example. 
Take community group, for instance. We get together, have a fellowship at someone's house. A passive person, a passive mindset will, will go, well, I'll just show up and I'll see how it goes and I, I hope I'm encouraged. There's a consumeristic attitude. Basically, it's the job of the leader to make it work. And I'll just show up and get whatever ministry is there and hopefully it's good. Uh, an initiative taking, active, every member ministry sort of model understands that I have a responsibility for how, how that community group goes. So as I go there, I pray for it. I say, Lord, work. Use this to make an impact in the people who are going to be present. And I show up eager and ready to engage with others. And I see if they're not doing well, I, I want to pull them aside and encourage them. And I want to say true and helpful things in the conversation about the word. Uh, there is a sense that I have to do my part to make this thing go forward, and I'm just not showing up to let somebody else do the ministry. That kind of initiative taking should characterize all of God's people. We are all responsible for building up the church and working to see it advance. So yes, pastors take the lead in shaping God's people, teaching them the word, but then God's people, all of God's people have a responsibility to engage in that work as well, to build up the body. Third thing, so what's the, what is the purpose, or what, what are we building toward? So we're building, we're all building, what are we building toward? What's the purpose? Verse 13, we are building up the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. That phrase unity of the faith, the, the word faith there doesn't mean belief or the act of believing or the act of faith. It refers to the body of truth that we confess as God's people, the truth that we hold as Christians, the faith once and for all given uh, to the saints, what we confess to be true about Christ and God and ourselves. That's the faith that's in view. And the idea is that we build one another up by helping each other to go deep in our understanding of Scripture and Christ and all that is ours in Him. We want to mature corporately in, our, in the way that we think so that we are thinking more and more in line with the gospel. We are appropriating more and more of the riches that are in Jesus, and in so doing, we are maturing, not just as individuals, but the idea here is that we are maturing corporately, becoming the people that Christ has called us to be, reflecting Him corporately as we go deeper and deeper in our understanding of all of the riches that are in Christ. This is a unity in doctrine, we as a community are more deeply understanding all of the riches of Jesus. And as we are appropriating those riches together, receiving them, we are maturing as a community and reflecting Jesus. What's striking about that, and what's perhaps challenging to those who might, who might want to say, ah, oh, doctrine is not that important. It's a luxury good in the Christian life, not strictly essential. Uh, that is contrary to what Paul says. What he wants for the church is that the church as a whole would mature in its thinking. That we, we would go deep in our understanding of Christ and the things of God and grow up together to maturity, to the likeness of Jesus. It's interesting to look in the New Testament how often there is an expectation that, that members of local churches will be able to teach and instruct each other. Take, for instance, um, Romans 15, verse 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, 
and able to instruct one another. Isn't that interesting? That there's an expectation that all believers, to a degree, will have sufficient doctrinal, biblical understanding that they're able to teach each other, to correct each other. Hebrews 5.12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. The expectation is you won't remain a child forever. You will grow up and you will be able to teach others the fundamental truths of the faith. There's an expectation of increasing doctrinal maturity. We're going deep in scripture, deep in our understanding of what Christ has done. And as that happens, we are maturing as a congregation. I think one reason that we sometimes don't see that as more significant and pressing than it is, is because we think we've arrived. We think that, no, I'm, I've been going to church 30 years. I'm doctrinally, biblically mature. Well, maybe you are. But simply being around the Word and various activities in the church doesn't mean that you've actually grasped the first principles of Scripture very well. You ask someone like that, okay, what's the difference between justification and sanctification in Scripture? Oh, I don't, uh, what's, what, what is faith and how is it different from repentance? Can you give me one verse in the New Testament that shows Jesus is God? You start putting pointed questions, and, and, and that confidence falls like a house of cards, right? Well, okay, it's not as, I'm not as far along as perhaps I thought. Be, merely being around churchly activities and maybe even different Bible studies doesn't mean you necessarily that you are growing in maturity. So don't assume that because you've, oh, I've been a Christian, I've been part of a church for 30 years, that necessarily automatically implies that there's a a doctrinal depth. I think there's another kind of person, though, who knows quite a lot about peripheral things and therefore thinks that they have a good grasp of the faith. And this this is kind of a strange phenomenon where you have an individual who knows a lot about, like, esoteric facts about Scripture you know, they'll go to Ezekiel 28, they know all the details about, is this is Lucifer, or is this Adam, or what's the reference, and they've worked through all of those kinds of issues. Um, so, so they know those kinds of things, there is a certain kind of knowledge, but often that same person, if you go, hey, what does justification mean? How does it relate to faith? Struggles. Uh, this is usually because, uh, in many cases, that sort of individual is listening to a lot of podcasts about the Bible this or that cool and interesting peripheral issue about Scripture, but is actually not reading Scripture that much and is not well grounded in the fundamental truths of the faith. So it's easy for us to assume, well, I've been around, I've I've done all of these things, I know certain things, and therefore I've reached a point of maturity. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. What we should value is this corporate growth in doctrinal understanding. It's It's the means God uses to bring us to maturity. And we should pursue that, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Those who are children in their thinking and in their grasp of Scripture are easily led from one theological fad to another. They are easily led into ungodly and worldly ways of thinking, not because they don't know Jesus and aren't sincere, but because they don't know the faith well. They're vulnerable to false teachers. And the world is full of false teachers. Fluent, well-educated, articulate individuals with a platform on the internet. Uh, Be more selective. Be more wise, more judicious in who you listen to. 
on the internet, on, on, on YouTube. Uh, be, be wise about that because Satan uses uh, individuals who have some mastery of Scripture to twist the sense of Scripture and confuse God's people. Error is unsettling to God's people. Uh, Titus 1 talks about those who are unsettled because of error that's being propagated. If, you don't, if you're not deep in your faith, you are vulnerable to one fat after another. You see this sometimes even with like Christian parenting. Different ideas about how to raise kids crop up from time to time. Uh, they're profoundly unbiblical, but because it's the trend, it's what everybody's doing. Christians uh, jump on board. Another, another instance of this that I've seen is you have Christians who love the Lord and are sincere, but they've bought into the idea, for example, that it's always God's will to heal you if you are sick. And if you are not getting healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. You come across that idea uh, perhaps more frequently than you should, even among believers. And people who, who subscribe to that are subscribing to an erroneous teaching. And when they're not getting better from their illness, they, they, they're filled with guilt. Uh, I don't have enough faith. They begin to doubt God. The problem is that's not biblical. Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for his frequent stomach ailments. Now, is that because Timothy didn't have faith or Paul didn't have faith? No. Uh, in that particular instance, Timothy had these health issues that lingered and required a kind of medicine, if you like. When we buy into false, ungodly, uh, worldly ways of thinking, it unsettles our faith, robs us of joy, and fills us with guilt. And so Paul says, we are shielded from that when we grow up in our knowledge of Christ, becoming more like him, we're not going to be tossed to and fro. We're going to have a confidence in what we believe. We're not going to follow every fad. We're going to be people with a strong sense of purpose. We're going to go forward, not blown every which way, because we are firmly rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. So that's the maturity towards which we are aiming. And then finally, Christ builds his church as his people speak the truth and love to one another. Verse 15, Christ builds his church as his people speaks the truth and love to one another. First thing I want you to notice here is that Christ is fundamentally the one who builds the church. Verse 16, from whom, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Who builds the church? Jesus builds the church. And we need to be crystal clear about that because he gets all the glory. Whatever progress the church makes, it makes because Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is working and building up. It should also, it should also teach us to pray. Like we, we can't put our confidence finally in ourselves or our techniques. We have to put our confidence in Jesus. We need to intercede for the church and say, Lord, only you can build your church, so please build the church, work in our midst. And how does he do that? So Jesus is the one who finally builds the church, but he does it through his people, as we've seen. And he does it especially as his people speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. It's interesting, the Greek in 15 is literally truthing in love. Truthing in love. Whereas truth is just a noun, not a verb in English and Greek. Truthing in love. Uh, as we communicate the truth about Jesus Christ to one another in love, what happens to the church? It is built up. Now this is so simple, 
but counterintuitive that it's worth pausing to consider this. Like as you describe, like how is it that we build the church? Well, we take what we know about Jesus in Scripture and in love, prayerfully, we speak that truth to one another. And as we do that, in formal context and informal context, the Holy Spirit uses that to grow us. There's a sense in which it's not just pastors who are called to the ministry of the Word. All believers, to a degree, are called to be individuals who know and love God's Word and can speak it to others for their spiritual good. This should be more organic and natural than I'm afraid sometimes it is. When we get together, it should be natural for us to talk about Jesus. To open scripture and say, hey, this is what Jesus is showing me. Isn't this amazing? Uh, A lot of times we're very reluctant to do that for any number of reasons. But the culture of our church, the culture of a healthy, flourishing church, is one in which people regularly will speak the truth about Jesus Christ to one another for the sake of mutual edification. So for instance, you know, you've got a child who's struggling academically and is frustrated So you sit on the side of their bed in the evening and you say, I know you're frustrated, but let me remind you. Let me me put your frustration in perspective. Let me remind you of all the good things that are yours in Jesus. How he loves you and takes care of you and provides for you and the future that you have. Remember those things. Yes, this is frustrating and hard, but don't lose sight of all the good that you have in Jesus. And and don't forget that that these trials and these difficulties are also part of God's plan for your life. This is not random or arbitrary. God has a purpose. But what are you doing? You're speaking the truth in love. You're seeing a need and you're bringing the word of God to bear on it for the edification of your child. When you sit down with a friend who's discouraged because marriage isn't working the way that they would like it uh, to go, open scripture. Share what God's word has to say. Show show them that despite the troubles that they're having, they have every reason to be encouraged because of what Jesus has done for them. Uh, Learn to inject the word of God into conversations with brothers and sisters. I'm convicted by this. I think generally in in our household, we try to do family worship and we're more or less consistent about uh, getting together around the word, praying together, you know, meditating on God's word. Uh, but, but one area where I'm challenged by this passage is the need to just informally, casually bring the word to bear, my wife and kids. It's something we're all called to do. Let me challenge you to do this very practically this coming week. Find one person in your home, outside of your home, uh, that maybe needs to, to be encouraged with scripture, and just speak God's word to them. Share what they need to hear. Find one. Start there. And then develop a habit sharing God's word with others. And significantly, it's, we're not called just to speak the truth. We're called to speak the truth in love. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Have you ever been corrected by someone who doesn't love you? They want to put you, they want to put you in your place. They want to show you you're wrong. Uh, the truth is not being spoken out of a heart that cares about you and wants you to do well spiritually. Uh, that's ineffective. To speak the truth effectively, we have to love the person we're speaking to. We have to communicate it for their good. When we love the person we speak to, they're receptive to what we have to say. And as we do that, as in love, we point each other to Jesus Christ, Christ builds up his church to maturity. So don't underestimate, maybe this hasn't been on your radar, don't underestimate the importance 
of speaking the truth to your brothers and sisters prayerfully, that God would use that to do good in their lives. This is something that not just pastors, but all of God's people are called to do. Jesus Christ is calling you, something to, calling you to something higher than simply a life of ease and comfort, where you think about yourself and consume the ministry of others and never contribute yourself. He's calling you to help people grow and follow him. Here's how Paul Tripp puts it. Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively changing them into his likeness, and he wants you to be part of it. That's the vision that we have here. Jesus is building his church using his pastors to equip the saints. And then as they're being equipped, they themselves are taking initiative to help others know Christ and walk with Christ. That's what you've been called to. Seek grace to be faithful to that calling more and more. Speak the truth to one another in love. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you provide all that we need to grow. And we pray that you would graciously continue to work in our midst mightily at CBC, strengthening us as individuals to do the work of ministry, giving uh, the elders and pastors of the church what they need to faithfully lead. We thank you for the work you've done thus far, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue. Amen.